Hey everyone, welcome to the Motion Church Weekly Podcast. On this podcast, we share some thoughts from our weekly gatherings as home churches, as well as our messages from when we all get together. It's our desire to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus, and we hope that this podcast encourages you to walk in that way. Thanks again for joining us, and enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Motion Church Weekly Podcast. Caleb and Shannon here with you this week, looking at a uh, interesting passage here. Closing out John chapter seven with one verse, and then heading into John chapter eight. And uh, Shannon, this brings up some uh, interesting things to talk about. You did a wonderful job explaining so much um, about this passage. Not only this, but the uh, entire. Um, part about uh, textual criticism, which is going to be what we lead in with today. So for people who don't know um, what textual criticism is, why don't you kind of lay it out for us there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We got a unique situation um, here with this passage we were looking at because we we use the ESV translation and they... um, really nicely lay out for us a, a little lead-in to the section that says the earliest manuscripts do not include mm-hmm. chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. And so, you know, there's a lot of people go, what? What are you talking about? And, and there's a lot of misunderstanding, and a lot of things are taken out of context with this, and then you're starting to wonder, wait, I thought there was no mistakes at all in my bible and what's going on and then i've got some smart guys over here using this word textual criticism what are they trying to you know criticize my bible for and (laughs) and and you get the whole spectrum across the board and it's it's really um important to understand why some of these bible translations have these notes in it and it is because of this subject called textual criticism and so um, I shared a bit about that on Saturday, and so I'll kind of do a little review of that with this. And one of the one of the sources I have on this, is a really cool uh, resource, it's like a beginner's guide to textual criticism uh, by David Allen Black. It's called The New Testament Criticism, A Concise Guide. He gives the uh, a nice sentence that gives the goal of textual criticism and he writes in there he says the goal of textual criticism is to recover the original text of the new testament from the available evidence in other words trying to get the the new testament text as close as we possibly can to the originals what's known as the autographs and because what we our translations are based off of they're not based off of the actual letters of Paul, the actual gospel of John. Those originally original written copies are gone. But what we do have is we have over 5,000 different documents of the New Testament. And, and they cover a wide range of, of a time period. And so the, the scholars who practice textual criticism, what they're doing is taking the vast collection of those, those documents and trying to, to get down to 
the the closest to what we have to what the original letters were. And so there was two points that David Allen Black includes in this book about why textual criticism is important. And he says none of the original manuscripts, those autographs of the New Testament, have survived. And, and that's what I just mentioned. We don't have any of those. And he he goes on to say that there's numerous mistakes in the extant copies, in the copies that exist of mm -hmm. the New Testament. In other words, if you were to lay out all 5,000 of those old copies that we have, you would find differences. And, and that's where we get this debate, is you got on one side, you, you got people that are just ultra-critic, you know, if it's not before this time frame, forget it, I don't listen to it. You got other ones that are, you know, God is going to preserve his word no matter what. And my Bible uh, is God's word, so I don't care what anybody says, you know. And and it's honestly both sides is just pure ignorance. And, and the textual criticism tries to dispel that. And you know what? It shouldn't be uh, that that puzzling i always share whenever i talk about this subject is i had a king james study bible that i bought and pretty much i would say the vast majority of the word more m-o-r-e in that bible was missing the r so it was mo you know god gave mo water for everyone to drink right and so it's hilarious well guess what that's a Bible with a mistake in it. Mm -hmm. Now, do we know what that word is? Yeah. Does it change any doctrinal thing? No. And that's the cool thing about these 5,000-some uh, New Testament documents we have. There's mistakes, but none of it affects any kind of doctrinal teaching or anything. Um, it's like spelling errors and uh, verses copied twice and... And sometimes the, the scribe inserted something that he thought would be there. Sometimes you look at an older copy and it's got footnotes or side notes. And then you look at a copy from the same area, maybe 100 years later, and all those footnotes have been inserted into the actual text. So this is the kind of thing that textual criticism does is, is really look at that and and that's the situation that we have here and and when you start looking at number one the language that is used in these passages it doesn't reflect the language that john uses in the rest of the gospel so i mean just from if we were all you know well versed in greek and we were reading in the greek we would all of a sudden be like whoa wait a minute there's this there's this shift here. I mean, if you've ever read any kind of book, an author inserts their voice into right. the story, how they describe things and 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 if you get somebody who tries to carry on the story, like sometimes an author will die and then they'll bring in another author. If they're not that well versed in the author, you can tell the difference right away. Hmm. And and that's kind of what you have here. You have some differences here. And then it's a weird break, and John doesn't have those kind of weird breaks. So the, I talked about a lot of those those kind of things. And actually, um, if you take all the information and you really study it out, it it really should fit at the end of, of Luke chapter 21, I think it is. 
um, right there at the end, it almost matches uh, word for word with the beginning of, or right here of this section of uh, John seven fifty three and eight one through two. It, it's almost the same identical mm-hmm. thing. So it and the language here really fits more in with Luke. And so the the big question is then why do we have it here in John? Well, because somewhere down the line it got inserted by uh, a scribe that was writing it or somebody was copying it. Um, some copies of Gospel of John have it in a different part, still in the Gospel of John, but a, a different part. And and so that's what they do is they look at all the, the copies. And so this note here is you take all the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament of the Gospel of John, and all the earliest don't have this passage here. And and that's why we have this note here. And it's good to know because if you study and you read, you may look at it and go, this seems like a weird break. Why why is it there? Well, now we know. Because yeah. the evidence is pointing, well, maybe it wasn't originally there. Um, you know, another uh, unique uh, thing... Um, about this was um, I'm trying to I don't want to reteach on the on the subject, but um, one of the coolest things about this is the church fathers, the early church fathers, and I mentioned them before in different passages or different messages and everything since we started Motion Church, and the church fathers were those guys that came after the biblical apostles and the guys that we know from the Bible. So they're the ones that are carrying on the tradition of the church in the 2nd century, 3rd century, and they wrote extensively. Uh, They're really our first commentators on the scriptures. And they say that you can take all of their writings, uh, guys like Irenaeus and Eusebius and, and a lot of these guys like this, you can take all their commentaries about the Bible and recreate the New Testament from their quotes of scripture and it's interesting because not one of them not one of them when they're writing about the gospel of john includes this passage in their commenting they all go from uh 752 to 812 it's seamless and uh so that's just kind of some of the 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 stuff about textual criticism and why it's important. And I, I really, I geek about this subject and it's really fascinating to me. And I could probably talk on and on and on and on and on and everybody's head would be spinning and, and all that. But I did mention on Saturday that, uh, one of the things that I do want to do is I actually do want to put a good layman's class together on textual criticism because I think it's important. God gave us these awesome, amazing, you know, brains between our ears to to use and to be challenged and to to really not just know the words on the page, but why we have mm-hmm. what we have. And and honestly, to me, God preserving His Word through these five thousand different documents over thousands uh, of years. Um, to me is more fascinating than some one single holy book that he just, you know, saved. And, and so, uh, it's really cool. It's really awesome when you look at the actual facts of the story, 
on how we got it and um and it's cool stuff so uh this passage right here is is one of the big the big subjects of textual criticism so um um, people when they talk about you know how can we trust the bible this fits into that all those copies that we have absolutely um, pointing to the same thing not one difference in doctrine those kind of things and so that's really cool um what would you say to the people who and we've experienced this in the past um where maybe this passage in certain translations isn't even mentioned that it's not in these transcripts from earlier they just put it in there and people have no idea that this wasn't in the original transcripts and so when they look at maybe a newer or modern translation and they look at it and their response is well they took that out of the bible what what is the response to that yeah that's a good um that's a good question because that is a subject that that does come up um because you know one translation is is from the 17th century and then we're holding our our modern translation as they call it and it would appear like oh they're trying to cause say that my bible over here from the 17th century is is wrong and and or like another modern version that takes it out completely see they're removing god's word well the problem is is that's based on a later collection Mm -hmm. of documents and and it's not saying that it's wrong but it's later in in time um there's three there's three sets of text when it comes to the new testament documents and i I know there's like a, a couple others that scholars go out there but there's three basic sets of text you have what's called the alexandrian text and and those were centered out of alexandrian egypt and then you had the the Byzantine, which is around where like Constantinople, Byzantium, Syria, it, the Middle East area. That was all the Byzantium texts. And then you have the Western, which finds its heart in the Italy, Rome, and and that part of Europe. And your two prominent ones collections are the Byzantium collection and the. Uh, Alexandrian and the Alexandrian texts are from an earlier time period in other words the time period that we have these texts is actually closer to when the originals were written and and so some of these translations are based off of, of Greek text collections that were made from a certain select group of um of these manuscripts so like the one of the the more well-known ones the textus receptus is primarily from the byzantium texts which were later from like the the eighth ninth century and then on Uh, whereas the alexandrian which a lot of the modern types are more based off of those even though a lot of them are looking at a more wide range of collection they're primarily the earlier text because we're the goal is is to get as close as we possibly can and so a lot of the later byzantium texts um had a lot of this stuff already in there because of those the areas they were at those became the tradition and so you know just like the the game of telephone 
in a way where one thing gets added in then the next person carries it on and the message changes over over time a lot of times the heart of the message is the same it's just the wording has has been changed and so they're they're coming from different text sets are either of them wrong no because one of the key things like with this story is just because it may not have been in john's original copy um the thing you got to understand is the stories of the Bible have been around since the Bible people were there. <laughs> In other words, sometimes we get this view that uh, Jesus did his ministry, the apostles went on, and then 30, 20, 30 years later when they started writing their things, all of a sudden God just like, oh, here's the words. And, and no, that's not how it happened. In that time frame, they're all ministering together, talking together, sharing these stories. These stories uh, more than likely got written down in small little chunks, almost like journal entries. And we know Luke, who traveled with Paul, was a doctor, a smart guy, took extensive notes. And a lot of these things then got turned into what we have as as scripture and so um they they compiled them together for a specific purpose and then they got carried carried on and so um yeah the fact of the matter is is those bibles were from a later set of texts this over here is from an earlier and that's what makes footnotes mm -hmm. so important i think one of the dangers with some of those translations is they don't have a lot of footnotes and so they're not telling you all of those those really important things and facts that you need to know about this document. And and sadly, if you just if you just take at face value what you have and and not think it through, um, it really kind of hurts our testimony mm -hmm. out there uh, because people can find these if people want to fight you. They're going to find this information. And if you don't know it's out there, and you say you're a follower of Christ, and this is important to you, but you don't even go after it, you know, you're just going to come across as not smart and not really taking the time. And and that's not what we're called to. Um, here, here's, I always get the discussion, too, or the question, you know, if you look at the Byzantium text, there's more of them than the Alexandrian texts. And uh, I say anybody's ever owned a book collection or worked in a library, if you want to, I work in a library, come by the library. I'll show you what happens to books that get used over a period of time mm -hmm. because I'm mending them every single week, re-gluing them, read this. Well, if you have a text that's more from the 4th and 5th century compared to a text that's coming from the 9th, 10th, 11th century, well, yeah, what are you going to have more of? The one that isn't as old. Because one of the things about followers of Christ is they use Scripture. Right. And, and so you also had the earlier periods in time which were under fierce persecution. Uh, forces that were trying to burn Scripture and, and all that. When you get into the more of the the later time periods and into the medieval time period, well, the church was all over the place. So you ha obviously you have more copies of that. More isn't always necessarily better, though. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have, you know, three gallons of ice cream 
or you could have a salad and and some good food. You know, you may only have a little salad, but I've got three gallons of ice cream. Well, what's going to be better for you? Yeah, come see me tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. But, so uh, yeah, well, man, that's that's really good, Shannon. I'm glad you shared uh, those things. And um, if anybody wants any more information on that, Shannon's the guy to go to. He loves talking about this stuff. <laughs> It's awesome. I can I, I can lead you in the I've right direction. I've learned a lot. Um, so thanks for that. But let's go ahead and get into uh, what the passage is about because we went through, studied this, um, and in case you haven't picked up on what passage we're talking about yet, uh, this is a familiar passage that I would probably guarantee most people in church have heard this passage before um, with the woman that was caught in adultery. And so... Um, we see the Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus here in this passage who had been caught in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and throw him at his feet, and they are trying to test Jesus here. And so um, as we're going through this, Shannon, why don't you give us some kind of important parts that really stuck out to you, and then uh, we'll get into the application here from this. Yeah, I, I think one of the main things is really seeing a deeper a deeper aspect to this story um because i i'm of one there, there's some that say hey this wasn't originally in john so i'm not even going to give it any time i'm one that believes it's an actual story it's just it wasn't in john's original original gospel and so i think i think it is excuse me really important for us to still look at and study it out and i think it typically gets used as you see you're not supposed to be judging or you shouldn't be a hypocrite. You know, you who's never sinned, you can cast the first stone and we're all sinners. So everybody needs to just mind their own business. And, and that's really not what's going on here at all. I mean, yeah, you can draw that from, from this, uh, but I think it's a very loose uh, application uh, of it because I don't think that's what, um, Jesus is getting at he's Jesus is defending his authority as the son of God and he uses the law to do it because um, they're first of all they don't come here trying to be legal according to the law right John even of himself uh, when he says that they they come um, says early in the morning all the people came to him he sat down, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman, been caught in adultery. Um, you know, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, and all in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him. Mm-hmm. So really, this whole situation isn't about them trying to uphold the law and bring Jesus into the situation. It's about them trying to push and egg Jesus on so they have a reason to arrest him. So it's right. it's false motive and and Jesus just I mean whammies them back back at it using the law because here's the here's the interesting thing. You know, Jesus says uh, or people like to say Jesus said, "You who has no sin, you cast the first stone." So if you've got sin, you know, you have no nothing you can say against me. No, what what is he he he's actually not telling them they shouldn't stone her. He's not saying that at all. Um, here's what he's doing. He's correcting their wrong approach to the law. 
because the law comes from Leviticus 2010. Mm -hmm. um, a couple spots. Deuteronomy 22.22 is another one. Levit Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then it goes on even further. I mean, the later passages talk about, you know, sleeping with a, uh, having sex with an animal and having sex with your, your aunt. And also, I mean, it goes into even more crazy detail, but that's the, the crux of it. The adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.22 says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And in both of those passages, they both begin with the three same first words. If a man. The emphasis is on the man. So who should, of the crowd, who really should they have brought to the forefront to Jesus? The man. So they don't. They bring the woman. The man isn't around. It's very possible that the man himself is in the crowd. We don't know exactly. It doesn't say. And um, that's when he goes. He says, listen, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. And he's actually um, going back to the law itself. Because the law itself says here, I think it's, uh, I think I got the reference, Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7, which said, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person should not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put, uh, to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So it was the witnesses who were to cast the first stones. And you almost get the sense here that the witnesses may actually be people taking part in this or really may not be in the crowd. And, and so Jesus isn't denying the law. He's actually using the law. He said, okay. He said, "Great, you're gonna you're gonna stone her." Well, number one, you're doing it without the both parties. But he said, "All right, you without sin." And he's not saying you that is perfect, that has never ever committed a sin, because he's the only one who has. What what he's saying is 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 that whole context, that whole when you look at the Greek and everything, is saying, "Okay, you who's never committed adultery, you who were not part of this act." Ever, you can cast the first stone and and remember the gospel of john didn't live in a vacuum we have the other gospels the other accounts of his earthly ministry where jesus said that you even look at a woman you've committed adultery in, in your heart so you've got a mixture of things you've got personal conscience he's playing off of you got the fact that there may be the guilty party as well in the group so for you to cast that stone you would be unlawful um he's bringing to light that they approached him in an un unlawful manner because they didn't bring the man which they're guilty right then and there because they're not following the law so, okay, he's basically saying, okay, those of you who are following the law completely, you you cast the first stone. 
and and I think that's the real the real key here is is for us when we are approaching those situations it really goes hand in hand with you know taking the the plank the log out of our eye right before we start worrying about the speck in someone else's eye it's really that kind of context for us um that that we really need to be self-reflecting before we start trying to bring the the judgment of God in the situation, mm-hmm. um, because that's where then we get that false and sinful judgmentalism that we're we're accused of, and quite frankly, we generally speaking are guilty of, you know. Um, and then the other take I get on this is before I and you know because Jesus looks at the woman and says hey, they're not going to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you either. In this situation, he could have, but now he's he's given what the kingdom is all about, and that's grace and mercy. But he tells her, now go and sin no more. Right. He's, he's, it ends on the note of, I've given you mercy. Don't blow it. Right. Don't blow it. Mm-hmm. Don't forget how you got here. Um, but then the second thing from this is how he handles the situation is I think they were expecting him to explode and, and erupt because they interrupted him. It's right. The passage here says he's, he's teaching his, the people, and they just barred right in the middle of it. And so it, it, any other rabbi would have probably ripped into the, the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't. He just kind of looks at him and then stoops down and starts doing something in the sand, which we don't know. We don't know what he wrote. We don't know if he drew something. You know, uh, it could be something amazingly profound. It could be playing tic-tac-toe. Uh, I think that's irrelevant right. uh, to it. And so he really sets them off off edge because they start badgering him. Come on, come on, come on. They're losing their patience. Mm-hmm. And then he just, boom, hits them with it and goes right back to, to doodling in the sand. And so I, I think that's a, a great thing for us is we don't have to be the masters on top of things. And, and our goal isn't to win. It's to share truth and love and wisdom. And, and sometimes we need to take those moments before we engage in a situation. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Well, I, um, this passage is, uh, really encouraging I think in some aspects because I've talked to people in the past where you know they're like well I'm you know messed up Mm. how do I you know move forward and and this passage Jesus you know like you were saying says to the woman I don't condemn you but go and don't sin anymore and so that is where we can take encouragement and I think that Jesus isn't con- condemning us if we are putting our yeah. trust in him but he does ask us to go and sin no more yeah and that's yeah. that's the difference but that's good um, really good stuff uh, this week looking forward to the coming weeks in John and so hey anybody if you have any questions or comments that you want us to uh, talk about feel free to leave us a comment or head to our website and um uh, talk with us through there, and we'd be more than happy to 
uh, get to these things on the podcast. So uh, thanks for listening this week. We'll be back with you next week on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Motion Church Weekly. As always, head over to our website at motionchurch.life or follow us on social media to keep up with the latest from Motion Church. We hope you have a great week.